Hi, everyone. So welcome to the beginning of our Advent series. Um, Advent is the time of year where we get to celebrate the uh, triumphant arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ um, when he came born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem in the line of David. And this is referred to as the first coming of Christ. And so we celebrate that first coming of Christ during this Advent season. But during this season, we also celebrate his second coming, the moment when Jesus Christ is going to come again and bring peace and justice to the earth. So during these next four weeks or so, we'll be talking about words like hope, peace, uh, love, and joy. And today I have the privilege and the honor of speaking to us about hope. So for everyone with your Bibles, um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, um, verses 1 through 7. And so to set a little bit of context, um, we see Isaiah, who's from the tribe of Judah, um, in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He takes on a task from God to go to the nation of Israel and the tribe of Judah and proclaim the messages that God has um, for these people. Unfortunately, what we see in Isaiah 6 is that God has closed their ears, he has shut their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts um, to not receive uh, the message that Isaiah is going to go out and proclaim. So what we really have is a stubborn body of people. Um, we have a uh, hated prophet, and we have a frustrated God um, who has just grown completely weary um, and just tired of Israel's uh, just insolence and lack of, of love for God. Um, so as we have these ingredients, um, this fallen people, um, this hated prophet, this frustrated God, um, you know, I seen these ingredients and I thought, how amazing is it that we serve a God that even in the midst of his frustration and anger can take these people um, who have just fallen and turned away from the Lord, and he can take this prophet who is going to be hated among everybody, and he can take this story and turn it into a story of redemption and hope. Um, so that word hope, um, as we see it defined, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Some examples of hope would be that, you know, my kids hope for uh, a 50-inch TV when we get our, our own place. They, they hope for that 50-inch TV for their room, as you can see the shaking head up here. Um, and although, you know, hope is great to have, um, I can guarantee you in this instance, their hope has been misplaced. Um, Coming to church today, maybe, uh, you know, you were, you were coming here expecting to be able to hear a great message from Pastor Tanner, and instead you see me standing up here and you're wondering what in the world you've gotten yourself into, um, and I am no Pastor Tanner, but hopefully I can still um, make your hope come true in the fact of you hearing a good message. Um, as a kid, uh, an example of hope that I would have was that Tanner and I have an older brother named Ryan, and Ryan, he was, he was a single kid, and, and his parents made good money, and so he had all of the, the cool things at his house, right? He had the, the swimming pool down the street that we could go to just about any time, and he had the hot tub in the backyard, and the basketball hoop in the driveway, and the, the brand new video games, and all of these things, and I remember playing the Nintendo 64, 
Now, you guys won't have any idea what that is, but at the time, it was an amazing video game console, and I loved playing video games. And so I remember having a hope um, that Tanner or I, maybe for our birthdays or, or Christmas or maybe even just as a surprise, would eventually land one of these Nintendo 64s. Um, and as Tanner's birthday came and went, and my birthday came and went, and Christmas came and went, um, we, we didn't receive the Nintendo 64, um, which, you know, just because I hoped for it didn't mean that I was going to get it. Um, hope is really, it's a wonderful thing to have. Um, in fact, I have it tattooed on my, on my hands. I have hope and prayer because even in times of trial and struggle, I want to remember to find hope when it seems like there is none. And I want to remember to pray for God to work it out according to his will. Um, because ultimately hope without prayer is really just a wish. And there's a big difference in what we hope for here in the world and what we have as our heavenly hope. You see, a worldly hope looks at something and devises a plan based on our own strength as humans. For instance, if I want a new car, um, I, I work hard in hopes for a raise um, so that that raise can help me make that purchase of that car. However, the hope of the raise is placed in the, in the, in the hands of humans, um, my bosses and my bosses' bosses, right? And so therefore, my hope is really limited not only to my human ability of how hard can I work, but also to the ability of whether or not my bosses want to give me that raise. So there's no guarantee because it's de entirely dependent on us. Our heavenly hope is much, much different. Our heavenly hope is realizing that one, heaven is real. And so therefore we can be certain that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what the storms or trials do to us, that our hope in God's promise of heaven is guaranteed and secure because it is dependent upon God's plan and God's strength and not our own. Amen. Worldly hope carries potential doubts and failure. A heavenly hope is really less of a hope and more of a certainty. Um, so that's what I want to focus on today. I know that the word is hope, but I want us to focus on the word certainty because certainty leaves no room for doubt. There's no room for failure with the word certainty. If we're certain of something, then that means that it has been confirmed, it is guaranteed, and it is 100% for sure without a doubt. And that's what we find when we place our hope in Jesus Christ. We find a hope that is certain. Um, so this word of God, I am certain that this is that word. This is the word of God. I am certain that this word contains no errors, no lies, no deceit, that it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, um, that this book provides us with guidance, direction, comfort, and certainty about what was, what is, and what is to come. So out of reverence for God's word, if we could please stand to our feet as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their shoulder, or the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the, the, the factual, just without air word that you have given us, God, for us to be able to learn from, um, to, to be able to hear from you, God, for us to be able to connect on a deeper level with you, God. And so we're so thankful for this word, Lord. Um, God, I just ask that as today, as we go through the sermon, Lord, that you speak through me, that people don't hear Colin, but they hear you, Lord. They hear what it is that you want them to hear, God, and that we leave here today with a certainty that is in you, God. So we pray all of these things, Lord, in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So my first observation that I gleaned from this text (laughs) um, is that Isaiah verses 9, one, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, provide us with a confirmed certainty. But there will be no more gloom for her who was, tre- who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And what we see here is in second, so in Second Kings chapter 15, verse 29, we see that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali that Isaiah mentions here in 9.1 was the first spot um, to be hit when the Assyrians came in and invaded um, the people. So the Assyrian invasion, which was allowed by God, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and to take control because of Judah and Israel's behavior, their, their lack of care and concern for their relationship with God, how they worshiped other gods and, and turned their backs to the Lord. And so he allowed for the Assyrians to come in and to take over. And just to kind of give a little bit of context as to how just absolutely frustrated and angry um, God was in uh, chapter 10 of Isaiah verses 5 and 6 Isaiah prophesies and he says woe to Assyria the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets so very clearly what we, get, what, we, what we see from this is that God is mad. I mean, he, he's upset, and, and understandably so, right? Um, the people that he has protected, the people that he has looked out for, the people that he has constantly delivered 
have once again turned their backs on him and rejected him. So he's tired of the insolence. He's tired of the insubordination of these people. And it's, I mean, he allows these people to come in and just take over. He has removed his hand. And so what we see in 2 Kings 17, 13 through 14, it said, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. He warned them through all of his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all of the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Their God. So if you follow that a little bit further, um, they even get into the specifics of all of the transgressions that the people have committed against God. So what we would get is a very clear picture of exactly why God was mad. It wasn't like God was being short-tempered. Um, you know, they had racked up a whole series of charges and it was now time that they suffer the consequences. So God's children had turned their backs to him. And I can only imagine the pain that God would feel as I sit here as, as a dad, right? Having my kids, I can only imagine what that would feel if my kids just woke up tomorrow and turned their backs on me. If they just pretended as if I didn't exist, if they just dropped me out of their life after I had done so much to try and guarantee their safety and happiness, that pain would suck. And to be honest, like I haven't always even been a good dad. So imagine being a perfect father and still having your children turn their back on you. Imagine having a perfect father or being a perfect father who has done absolutely everything for your children and they just continue to turn their backs on you over and over and over again. And so what we see is, is an understandable reason why God has removed his hand so this invasion by the Assyrians really marks um, some very, very dark times for God's chosen people. Um, we see thousands of people taken into slavery and deported all over the Assyrian Empire. But it didn't just stop with the Assyrians. We see the Babylonians come in and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and the people were constantly under the thumb of foreign power. But our God is an awesome God. The next part of verse 1 that we see, Isaiah prophesies that this land that is experiencing so much torment and anguish at the hands of its oppressors will not always be so. In fact, Isaiah says that the gloom and the doom that they're experiencing shall be made glorious. Um, and the land that the enemy has taken will be made glorious. What we see next is where this statement has turned from a prophecy to more of a confirmed certainty. See, because God's punishment, although it was a long one, um, God is always faithful. And so what we see is some 700 plus years later, we see redemption arrive on scene. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody... He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So what we have is a prophecy spoken over 700 years before has become a confirmed certainty upon the arrival of our ultimate Redeemer, our Shepherd and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come to remove the darkness and anguish of captivity and usher in a new era, an era of light that darkness cannot overcome. So if we can see that Christ is the confirmed certainty here in verses 1 and 2, we can also find comfort in knowing that our certainty in Christ's second coming is confirmed also. That we can find comfort in knowing that on the day that only the Father knows that Christ will return and establish the kingdom here on earth. This is for sure. This is for certain. So now Isaiah really, he, he holds nothing back. Um, as a matter of fact, honestly, if we were to pack up today and leave the sanctuary, um, I feel that we could leave filled with, the, with a certainty in our heavenly hope. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. In fact, that's not even half of the prophecy. So what we see is a certainty in our heavenly hope. If these two verses were just a little one-two like combo shot, what we see is a real haymaker that follows. So my next point that I want to get into today is that there is a guaranteed certainty in Isaiah 9, 3 through 7 that applies to us today. That we can find ourselves certain that Christ will come again. He tells us God will multiply the nations. That his kingdom will be multiplied. That God continues to guarantee this certainty every time a brother or sister comes to Christ. So you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Every time that somebody comes to love the Lord, our nation is multiplied as we gain a brother or a sister. The second part of that is in Isaiah 37 when God delivers, the, delivers Jerusalem um, from the hands of the Assyrians. He did not remove punishment the, the, the Israelites still suffered at the hand of the Assyrians, but God would not let the Assyrians touch his city, the city of Jerusalem. So what we see there is kind of a then and a will again. Um, just as God delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians, and I imagine that they were um, just ecstatic about that, right? Like that is their city, that is God's city. And so as it says, they will... Um, they will be glad in your presence. They will um, be glad as if the harvest has come, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So I can imagine just how excited and how happy they were. And what we can find um, gladness in is that is just as God delivered Jerusalem then, we can be certain that Jesus Christ and all of his mercy and grace will rid us of the enemy also and that we will be so full of happiness when that day comes. That happiness, I imagine, is kind of difficult um, to explain. You know, I imagine, let's say, $5 million just dropping into this room and us being able to divide it all up. Um, maybe the happiness that you felt at the birth of your children um, or the happiness that you felt the day that you married your wife or your husband. Um, these are nothing but tiny little drops in the bucket compared to the kind of elation that we will find when Christ returns. 
And some people ask, like, how? How is that type of happiness possible? You know, we, we live our day-to-day lives and, you know, some, some of us struggle with finding any happiness or, or you know, a, an, just an extravagant amount of happiness. So how is this type of happiness possible? Well, and thankfully, Isaiah didn't just leave us with a bunch of unanswered questions. Um, so I have the NASB Bible translation, and in this translation, what we see is this word for. And the word for in verses 4, 5, and 6 really are a this is how word. Um, so as we read, so verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So we see this word for tells us exactly how that type of happiness is going to come about. We know that that type of happiness is going to come about because there's going to be a beautiful day for the nation of Israel when Christ comes back and he breaks the yoke on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. The battle of Midian, as Isaiah mentions, is in the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7, and what we see is that once again the the Israelis have have the Israelites have turned their back on God. They have started worshiping other gods. They have removed him from their lives. And so God removes his hand and allows the Midians to come in and seize Israel. And seven years they were under Midianite rule until finally they got tired of it. And what did they do? They cried out to God. They cried out and they said, Lord, I am sorry. Like, help us. We need help. We are tired of being ruled by these people. We love you. We, you know, we are so sorry. Um, and God is merciful, right? And so God raises up a man named Gideon. And Gideon goes out um, to lead the people against a nation that is is much larger, a nation that is much stronger. But kind of in true, like, Old Testament fashion, uh, what we see is that God doesn't allow any room for there to be any kind of misunderstanding as to who it is that's really saving the Israelites. You see, God in all his style takes the Israelites down from an army of 32,000 to a mere 300. Um, an army of 300 without the power of God is nowhere near close enough to take out these Midianites. But God wanted to make sure that everyone knew that it was in his power to save them, and he did. Those 300 in Gideon removed themselves from control of the Midianites. So let us be certain that just as God did with Gideon, God will do again and deliver Israel from the foreign powers, the foreign oppressors. He will remove the the yoke and break the rod. Christ will come on scene again and the enemy will be gone. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. See, we can be certain that this will happen. Not only will he remove those foreign powers from Israel, 
but it says in that, in that verse that we can be certain that this happiness is going to come about because when Christ comes and delivers us from the hands of our oppressors, it says that there's not going to be any more need for instruments of war at all. That all of our, our guns and our bullets and our, our tanks and all of our instruments that we use for war are just going to burn up. That they're going to be fuel for the fire because they're no longer going to be needed because Christ is coming. And when he comes, he is going to establish a peace so peaceful that we'll never need war again. And the best part of these three verses, for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us. This part has already been answered. This is that first coming of Christ. It is already confirmed and certain. And what we see is that it says that the government or the government will rest on his shoulders when he comes again because we are certain that the son is coming again. And when he does, he is going to rule all of the nations. And that is why there's going to be no more need for war. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor because he will rule with almighty wisdom. Mighty God, because although the battle has yet to come, the battle has already been won. And we can be certain that all things that God has spoken to happen will happen. Eternal Father, because the Messiah will eternally be a father to the people. And Prince of Peace, because when Jesus Christ comes back once again, an era of peace will come among the nations of the world and we will live in harmony. Of this I am certain. And what we see is all of this certainty that we see in verses 1 through 6, confirmed or guaranteed, are really wrapped up nicely in verse 7 as Isaiah explains what it will be like when these guarantees become er, confirmations. Verse 7 reads, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with righteousness or with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, what we see right here is, is the Davidic covenant that God promises David that his throne will be established forever. We see it mentioned here that, once he, that, that this person that comes, God, or G- Jesus Christ, when he comes, he will be from the throne of David. We know this. And so we know that Jesus Christ is the answer to that promise. Christ's reign will never end. It says that he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. And the most awesome part, it says, it ends with the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And if there's anything that I've learned when I started picking up this word and I, and I gave my life to God, it's that God is a God of miracles, right? It was a miracle that he took me from the wretched person that I was and brought me to where I am today. And so if God is a God of miracles, which we know that he is, and God is a God of promises, in which we know that he is, we see that when he says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, zeal is like a burning passion or a burning desire to do something. So if God has a burning desire to see this come to fruition, then I can guarantee you, and I am 100% certain that it will. Before I knew God, I was uh, something of a skeptic. I like to ask 
questions that created doubt. I like to create confusion and misunderstanding. Um, I always thought that I was a lot smarter than other people. But if there's one thing that I have learned over these last couple of years, it's that Jesus Christ is a certainty. 30 times in the book of Isaiah, 30 times there were prophecies that Isaiah made that referenced the first coming of Christ. 30 times in which we can be certain that God spoke through Isaiah and told us that Jesus Christ is coming and 30 different times that we can look back and say, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. 30 different times that secure our belief and understanding and faith in the fact that God is a God of promises. We see it time and time again that God holds true to his word. So when Israel turned away from God, he promised them that he would remove his hand, and that's exactly what he would do. But he also, those were also his people, and so in his mercifulness and his grace, whenever they needed him and they came to him, he was there for them, just as a father should be for their children. So what we see is Isaiah is a perfect example, really, of the mighty God that we serve. This is why we can have certainty in our future. One thing that I always heard from my mom and dad when I was a kid, you know, when I would ask questions like, well, why, or, or how come, or, you know, what, I don't know, I don't want to do that, you know, and, and the, one, one of the things I can remember them always telling me is turning around and looking at me with that, that glare almost, like they're just, they've reached their limit of patience, you know, and they look at me and they tell me, because I said so. You know, do what you're told because I said so. And so, brothers and sisters, what we can be certain of is Christ's second coming. We can be certain that we will see an end to anger and depression and sadness and violence and hatred and warfare. And we will see Jesus Christ reign here on earth just as it is in heaven where we will experience peace justice and righteousness and we can be certain of this because in this book god said so so my prayer for today as i get ready to close if you want to come up and do your song um my prayer today is really that you know we all know a lot of people and there's a lot of people out there today um, and every day that have hope in something but so much of that hope is in a worldly hope. Maybe they're hoping in someone more. Maybe they're hoping for someone or something to come into their lives and help them because they're just tired. While there's people out there that maybe have a hope in Jesus, but they still carry around so much doubt and uncertainty. And while there's people out there that have no clue at all, have no hope, my prayer is that everyone here can leave today and not be hopeful, but be certain that Christ is coming again. That you can be certain that our God is a God who backs up his promises. That, our, that you can be certain that Jesus Christ was, is, and is to come. And that you are certain of this, so much so, that that certainty kind of just radiates off of you like a bright light that people are drawn to. So that when people come to you, they can be certain of God's promises too.